it's a big responsibility, and I, I, I take it very, very seriously. And when you move the whole thing up a cog into display flying, it becomes even more important than that. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we get to travel the world to hear from people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show, and you'll get future episodes downloaded direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 15 and part two of our interview with Dennis the Maestro at Kenyon. If you haven't listened to part one, then you might want to go back to episode 14 and listen to that first because it's a cracker. In this episode, we cover a lot more ground around helicopter display flying and especially the Dennis Kenyon Junior Scholarship. Especially as you're listening to where Dennis talks about scholarship, have a think about who in your network might be able to get involved and be able to get behind this. Today's episode is sponsored by trainmorepilots.com. If you're struggling with attracting students and want to fill your training organization, then there are some free resources on the website at trainmorepilots.com that can help you out with your marketing. Let's jump back into part two of our interview with Dennis Kenyon. At the end of part one, we had just been discussing some of the display maneuvers that Dennis performs. On the day of the display, like what's your routine? So you turn up to the airfield and the display is later in the day. Do you have yeah. a you know a routine or do you do a mental you know rehearsal? I do How very do you do much. It? It's a problem that because whenever you pitch up, particularly if you've gone a long way, and that was one of the problems I experienced in Salt Lake City because you know here comes a pilot from England six thousand miles away. We all want to talk to him. And just at the time, I wanted to sit down quietly and think through what I was going to do in the circumstances and in the conditions. I didn't get the opportunity to do that. Only once in my display career have I refused to fly, and that was at an air show where a man in a fire wagon came up, came up to my helicopter with my rotors turning without any permission from me sitting in the seat and started to berate me for being too close to the crowd. Um, I just called the display director and said, sorry, I need to talk to this about to somebody else. I'm going to abandon this display and I shan't be doing a display. So it is a problem. So what I like to do is get to a show, if there's a pilot's tent, creep into it, get my pen and paper out, even to the point of walking up and down on the grass through the routine I'm going to do at that particular show. But sometimes you can't do it. And when I'm training anybody who wants to become a display pilot i emphasize that very much so somehow you've got to get some time to think through what you are going to do that particular day the wind is always a a b of course because if you fly over the crowd you can get into terrible trouble with yourself the certification authorities they don't mind you doing it once as long as you don't do anything silly to get out of it but if you continually broke the display line or the crowd line they they get a bit excited about it and as a dae i would if i watched somebody else do it you mentioned a little bit earlier that you kind of do vary the display a little bit, but 
do you have a fairly set display now? Like, like how, how much would it change? No, I, I'm sorry, I haven't put, made, made myself clear. Of these 17 manoeuvres, before I, when I go to a show, I decide which sequences fits that particular space. I mean, I don't display air show crowds an awful lot. Um, I did a display not too long ago for uh, Nick Mason, the um, Pink Floyd man. His wife, his lovely wife was faulty, I think it was, and he said, would you come to my house, join the party and do one of your displays? And I did. Well, that was a, a restricted area, and I couldn't do the full body display at all. So I sit down work out that manoeuvre will fit in I can follow that one I did another one for Barry Sheen's memorial at Goodwood House a few years back and the same thing applies that was on the cricket ground with Goodwood House in the background and you just simply select the manoeuvres that are appropriate to that having selected it you, you grill them into your brain I sometimes write them down even and then before the display I like to mentally take myself through it even to the point of, say, of walking up and down on the grass and, and turning around so I've got the thing clear in the head Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, because all the videos I've seen were pretty much airfield type ones. So, yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, let's talk about Salt Lake City then. So, again, there's a you know a couple of videos on online of the crash, and what I might do <laughs> is you've done a, a fantastic article where you actually talk through uh, what happened on the day and, and things like that, looking uh, back at it. So. I, I, might. I thought this horrid, I thought this horrid thing would crop up. <laughs> <laughs> so look, I'll, I might link to the article if because you know it's some really good stuff there about the. We're, you know, we're all at our one bite. <laughs> oh, absolutely, and, uh, and look, I definitely don't want to go into from that point of view. It's more very much a, a learning point. Is, uh, look, is one of the quotes here I loved again that I pulled out was that. Um, so he is human after all, and, and the fact that you know you've obviously been doing this for so long and and, and so great that uh, that there's a, a chink in the armor that people thought you actually were human. <laughs> so uh, do you want to, I guess, describe the manoeuvre and, and what happened? Um, because you're pretty lucky to, to get a, to walk away from that. Yes, you're so right that um, I, I've explained it to myself because when one is something as badly wrong as I did then, you've got to say, well, am I going to go on doing this? Because the next time I'll kill myself. And, and you know, I love life and the last thing I want to do is, is to hurt myself that way. And Funny thing is, if you're, you, you know, you're being a rotary pilot yourself, you, you know, you, you know, you're in a, a, a business with extra risk, and you just try to minimise that risk. Now, display is going the other way. You're actually increasing that risk. That's, you know, if you do it enough, then you do it. Now, I believe that if you ask me exactly what was the major failing, there were several, like all accidents. There's a series of things that lead up to it. One of them was I took off with too much fuel because for environmental reasons they wouldn't let me dump it. Other little things like that. But the major thing was having assessed the density altitude, and I'd flown in Austria and other places where I had something similar, not quite as, as severe as at Salt Lake City, which was nearly 5,000 feet high, and the temperature was 96 that day in Fahrenheit. And so I worked out a routine that would exclude any of the manoeuvres that might give me a, a recovery problem uh, and all I can remember and this is what I believe is experience working against you it can actually do it I remember starting that day first of all I checked the ground if you ever see the routine there's no three or four minutes of it only I checked very carefully the surface because one of the maneuvers I do is to land on the left skid and circle on it apart from the pirouette so I always check the ground and look at it if I can't walk over it first and I looked around it, yeah, I'm quite happy with that. Uh, and I remember starting with a pirouette, a gentle wind, nice temperature, and I thought, this machine is flying normally. Now, it cannot be, but it is. Uh, normally, if I do a rearward climbing turn, 
uh, it makes a hundred feet in every 360 degree rotation. So if I do three rotations, I finish up at 300 feet. I can go into the display. And I always remember flying away from the crowd thinking, and I decided that the lowest I would come would be 75 feet above the crowd, above the surface. Uh, and I would add 10 to 15 knots to each of the, the gate speeds. I remember flying away from the crowd thinking, this is just normal. Didn't even do what I decided I would do. I ran into the crowd at my normal height, pulled it back, went over the top, came down, hit the ground. And that was a, that was really, you know, here comes, this is display number 1223. I'll do another one later on this afternoon, it'll be 1224, another one. And so, so just to repeat, if there was one single failing, it was me not keeping to the routine, the change routine that I decided I should do. And I believe that was because, big edit if you like, I just thought, oh, so here comes another display. Everything's the same as it normally is, and it wasn't. That wouldn't be an Fortunately, the good, the, I was only fortunate the good lord up there or somebody up there was looking after me, and uh, I, I did damage my back, and I lost some teeth. The lower teeth of my head went forward and whacked on the instrument panel, or at least on the combing. Um, but there was no other damage whatsoever. Yeah, and... Uh, the airplane. <laughs> the airplane, yeah, exactly. So pancaked in, and uh, yeah, I, I think you were lucky to get out of one. But that comment you made there about you know changing the planned routine, I think that would be a, a causal factor in, in many air show or many display um, uh, crashes or incidents. Yeah, I, I'm convinced of it now, looking back. Um, uh, well, I, I've said this to other people. Um, one of my dear mates is a chap called Brendan O'Brien. He is a very, very experienced fixed-wing display pilot, fireworks at night, Piper Cub, all sorts of things, very, very experienced, holds a rotary license. Um, we've had lots of flying together just recently for another reason. And I said to him, Brendan, if you had been, or somebody like you, or yourself, Mick, if you had been with me, I was all out there alone, just thinking, what should I do? Um, if you had been with me or somebody like you had been with me or this Brendan fellow had been with me, he, he, you would have said, Dennis, look very, very carefully at what you're about to do. And I'd like to think that I would do the same to somebody else or you would have done the same to me and said, look, you realise what you're doing now. It's 5,000 bloody feet and it's like 96 degrees and maybe hotter out there in the desert. Um, for goodness sake, now what are you going to do? And I'd said, well, I'm going to fly at 75 feet or 175 feet or what I was going to do. And you probably would have said, well, make damn sure you do it. And I didn't. And I think another smaller factor was because I was by myself, nobody referred to. Now, it's a silly thing to say after all those displays, but um, it's the first time really uh, that, that with circumstances, the ambient circumstances have changed so, so dramatically and I didn't cope with it. All right, well, let's jump back into uh, other bits and pieces then. So the, the actual course that you run to qualify someone in the UK as a display and, and, and flying uh, pilot, uh, it's like a 20-hour course. What, what do you take people through in that, in, that, in that course? Well, there's no such thing as a display course yet. There is for fixed wing, of course, but there isn't any such thing. And I have actually had this discussion with our Civil Aviation Authority at Gatwick here, um, uh, and they said, well... Yes, you know, we can't stop you. We don't want to stop you from showing somebody the routines. Um, but there's no approval course. I actually said to them, if I drew up some papers and set out a course, would you approve it? He said, no, I'm sorry, we can't get involved in any of that at all. Whatever you do is up to you. So what I do is, I suppose once a week, I get an email from somebody, oh, I saw you display at so-and-so. I'm now 500 hours. I love flying. I want to do this and I want to do what you do can you train me to do it? 
And I usually go back and say, well, look, of course you can. First thing to do is have a long conversation with yourself and then a long conversation with me or with somebody who knows you quite well, your instructor or something. I would consider you need at least 500 type hours. You need six-wing aerobatic experience and you need to talk to me about your mental attitude to display flying. You're there to show off how well the machine can fly, not how well you can fly. I can teach you to fly it, but you're going to have to get the right aeroplanes. That's really the background to the course. There is a document called CAP 403 in England, which is the Display Pilot's Bible. You need to get your hands on that, read it through, read the print off it, and then come to me And uh, if you want to pay for it. I would recommend you cannot launch yourself on a display course unless you're prepared to do at least, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 hours. The last person I did did actually just over 20 hours with me. And I think, and, and he is now a display pilot, he's doing displays. It's a difficult thing. I, I, in some ways, I don't want to do it because you know, you've seen display accidents. I've seen my own. I've seen other people's, some of them fatal. Uh, and I don't really want to ever think I've, I've taken a person out of the woodwork given a display authority and he's killed himself and he's now left a widow or family or children or whatever behind. So it's a, it's a big responsibility. As sure as just being a flying instructor is. I've had wives ring me saying, oh, my husband is, is learning to fly with you. Is it safe? And I'm going, brother, you must talk to him about that. So it, it's a big responsibility and I, I, I take it very, very seriously. And when you move the whole thing up a cog into display flying, it becomes even more important than that. So I don't know the answer to the question, I haven't got any anything solid about it to say, except that you need the right motivation, you need the right attitude to it, self-discipline, the right aeroplane, the right level of experience, and of course, to a large extent, a lot of aptitude for that sort of thing. Look, I think, uh, yeah, if, if you had to get the, the training off someone, it's, you'd probably be in pretty safe hands, I reckon, uh, going through with yourself. So, um, all right, well, let's close off the display fly. A couple of quick more points here to cover, and then if we can jump into uh, a little bit about the scholarship as well. So have you met um, Chuck Aaron? Have you, had, have you flown a, a 105? I've tried to meet that man. He's one of my heroes, of course. Um, he, he puts on an absolutely incredible spray in the 105. But of course, the 105 is, is probably the most suited aeroplane in the world for doing that. In the 70s and 80s, I was great muckers with um, uh, Charlie Zimmerman, the German, who won the World Championships two consecutive times. Um, and also Human Fuchs, who took over from him and won the World Championships. And before either of them, I met Gerrit, was a Huff, Huffman, the German. He was the first person I ever saw loop an aeroplane. So, you know, those guys are the legend of the industry to some extent. You know, I've taken over from them, but at the bottom end of the market, you know, I'd love to fly a 105. It's one of the types I haven't flown and do display. But you must have seen as well, the, the 105 guys can get it wrong as well as, as that, the horrible case of the 105 getting what was probably a jack stall. Instead of coming across the airfield at high speed and then pulling off cycle and then rolling, he rolled first and pulled himself into the ground. You must have seen the shot. So, you know, it's it's an area that, you, you might say, let's not do it at all. I've had a few very experienced pilots whose opinions I respect have come to me and said, Dennis, look, we love what you do. We love watching you, but you shouldn't be doing it. You're bringing a cavalier attitude. We're teaching people the discipline of learning to fly a helicopter, and here you are doing those things. And 
I don't know the answer to that. Nobody says the same thing about fixed wing. Look, that's but, uh, that's interesting because when you watch the when you watch your displays, the Cavalier wouldn't be the no, that's right. The verbal adjectival and the what I described because it, it looks very calculated, and that's why we ask those questions about you know the prep for it and things like that because most you know display pilots have been doing it as long as you have. It's uh, a very disciplined uh, thing as opposed to being sort of a hot shot type thing. So. Well, it is a very disciplined thing. Um, I said to you once already during our chat today that you know I, I've had a very good, very good life and with luck, the Lord might give me another 10 or 20 years and I want to go on enjoying them. But um, you can hurt yourself and people do hurt themselves. And I've seen some pretty horrible accidents. There was the one in Minsk, wasn't there, in a 500 where the bloke I don't know what he was trying to do, attempting the loop or whatever, and he just went straight in the ground vertically, never even half recovered. So it's, I, I don't know the answer to all this. I can only repeat my experiences. I've been doing it a long time. I love what I do. I love to think that I'm giving other people pleasure. Um, I love the re- reaction you get from the crowd. And in a lesser way, the way it puts a, a type on the map. If this little Cadbury that Bruno Grimble has produced is, in my view, a great little training helicopter. It's got so many advanced features to it, 21st century airplane. But to really accelerate that process of those sales, one of the Frenchmen or somebody wants to get hold of that machine, I believe, work up a neat, nice little display. It's a multi-blade, so you don't have a two-bladed problem. It's work up a neat little display and I think that would enhance the progress it's going to make anyway, as surely as it did for the Enstoms. When I started displaying the Enstom, at first, a lot of the trade were being a bit naughty. They were saying, look, that machine's driven by a rubber band, it won't lift anything. And then suddenly, I'm at air show, showing off what it would do. And it shut up the knockers instantly. And I'll never know the answer to it, but I, I would say that the, the sales we were making for the type, for the Enstom type, a lot of it was to do with the display program. Yeah, definitely. I would have to agree. Now, Dennis, I've got two quotes here to read, and then we'll talk about the scholarship. Um, so these are to give you a bit of a laugh. But the first one, I think, would have been from your 80th birthday. But this is from uh, Dennis Martin uh, from Instrument Helicopter uh, Corp. So congratulations yeah. from all of us here at the Instrument Factory. You're the stuff of legends around here. It's always fun uh-huh. to watch. It's always fun to watch new employees Google Instrum, come across one of your videos, and ask, "Can you really do that?" Uh, thank you for being our champion all these years, and we look forward to many more. And the other one relates to uh, it's rumoured that you have a, a little prayer that you say before each um, <laughs> each fly or each display. And uh, dear God, please let me perform an outstanding display, one that will attract the attention of the most gorgeous girl in the crowd, so that she will feel <laughs> so she will feel compelled to come and look me up when I'm done. Uh, so. How lovely! I have seen those two, of course, but. Um, uh, the second one uh, was me displaying uh, an Enstrom at the Biggin Hill Fair, and my dear friend who's in Italy now, and my company taught him to fly, a chap called Enrico, lovely man, English as they come, but with a fond parents, and he put those quotes underneath the machine, because I must have been looking down at something, and it looked as though I was praying. The other one from the Enstrom, uh, it's lovely to hear people say that, because you know I've been doing it such a long time, and one of the dull things about being a display pilot, half the time you pitch up at an airfield, you jump into your machine having done your pre-flights, you do your display and then you pee off. And you don't get much chance for feedback. And it's always very nice when somebody comes up to you and seeks you out and says, Dennis, you know, I've been flying helicopters quite some time. 
I enjoy what you're doing. Well done. That is nice. And to hear the factory, the people who make the helicopter, hear some of the employees say that is is ditto. Very, very nice indeed. All right. Well, this next one, I don't think you'll have heard before. It's a bit of a surprise and it leads us into the scholarship. So uh, Hannah Nobbs was obviously one of the, the scholarship winners who, who flew with you. And I managed to catch her on LinkedIn. So she sent a little message uh, here that I'll read out. So uh, being awarded the Dennis Kenyon Junior Memorial Helicopter Flying Scholarship was a once in a lifetime experience. Learning to fly was fantastic and something I had only ever dreamed of. The best part was learning from Dennis. His enthusiasm for flying is infectious and following him on his various flying adventures during training allowed me to see so many new places and meet new people in the helo industry. The scholarship opened up a world of opportunities within aviation. Nearly 10 years on, I'm working as an aerospace engineer for a leading helicopter manufacturer and have gone on to do the ATPL exams and flown in several parts of Europe. To any companies that have the opportunity to sponsor the scholarship fund, I would say that the potential return from the scholarship to industry is immense. In my opinion, it is not so much about encouraging young people to be commercial helicopter pilots as the extra funds needed to get to a position where you are employable is huge, but about opening up a whole world of helicopters and aviation to a young person and gaining a lifelong ambassador to the industry. So I hope this is useful. Please give Dan all my best from Hannah. So can you give the backstory to the scholarship program that, that Hannah went through and the, the scholarship program that you run? Well, Mick, that's down near brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Hannah won our last but one scholarship. A lovely, lovely lady, of course. And that's what my scholarship is all about. It's taking someone from the woodwork, as they use that expression these days, someone with a an avid interest in flying, especially rotary, and to give them an opportunity, a financial opportunity that they wouldn't otherwise have, uh, and then to make their mark in aviation as surely as Hannah is. She's now in the design department at Westlands at Yeovil. She's been down um, to the Italian end of the business, and it's just lovely to see it. And she's a lovely lady. I don't think she's been engaged yet, but she's now with a, a rotary pilot who's about to start his own business, and I wish them so much so much good fortune in it. Only, yes, this month, two weeks ago, I came back from a hill walking holiday with um, Zoe, another lady who won our first scholarship. She is now, she came out of the woodwork, again, rather like Hannah. Um, I don't suppose that she would have ever had the opportunity to become involved in aviation for financial reasons. She is now a flight safety officer with the British Airline Pilots Association and doing exceptionally well, and now beginning to feel her feet. She's been, she's had her license now for years, um, and it's lovely to see that happen. I just came off this holiday with them and her brand new husband, and I spent three or four lovely days with her. Now the last lady who won, funny enough, three consecutive ladies, believe it or not, and I don't vote. I'm the chairman of the committee, but I don't vote. Um, the last lady was a girl Georgie. Um, I knew her father, funny enough, but it didn't affect in any way um, he was a commercial pilot, rotary pilot, uh, but didn't affect any way the choice was made, and I, I withdrew from that particular selection process. She got herself a license, but then um, she really wanted to get her license and get married before her father left us because he had a, a nasty disease. Um, she, in fact, um, got married. Uh, but he died just before then. So it changed it somewhat for her. But she is now working 
with the Robinson distributor for England, Sloan Helicopters, and I wish her as much uh, success in, in, in flying as she still is now involved in aviation uh, as the other two winners. So it's been a lovely thing for me. Um, I can, so if we've got time, but I can cut it out, obviously, if, if it's, we don't, you run out of time. But one of the things I've said to so many people, Mick, I don't know what time it is now, I can't look at the clock, but um, uh, today, uh, on the 27th of October, somewhere in England, there is a youngster. I don't know who that youngster is, and you don't, obviously, but somewhere in England there is a youngster, male or female, and she, he, will be somewhere between 18 23, we were thinking of changing it for 2015 to maybe 18. And if you were to go into their little pet den, there'd be pictures of airplanes on the wall and helicopters, perhaps. Now, what I find interesting and gives me so much comfort is this time next year, that person will be a helicopter pilot. Wow. It's a lovely thought. The biggest problem now, of course, is I don't have the big income that I had when I had my full-scale business. It's funding. It's costing a great deal of money, something in the region in England of £20,000 to get a PPL. A lot of people said, Dennis, you should take them on further than that. You can't just give them a private license and drop them, and I don't want to do that if we could. So if I could use this platform, if there is anyone out there who feels they see an opportunity, a big major international company or any media who thought they could see some mileage out of running a short TV series about the scholarship, or possibly a major company involved in aviation who felt they want to put something back into aviation, I would be absolutely delighted to work in any way they wanted to um, to run the scholarship. I've got ideas. In England, there's a man called Simon Cowell who runs a thing called The X Factor, and he plucks people out, musicians and singers and things, uh, and gives them international exposure, and some of them become stars. I'd love to run something on those lines in any way that the sponsor would do so. I have no fixed ideas about it, but I'd love to see something like that happen. And then when I do eventually stop flying, I'd like to see that thing going on. Uh, I think there could be a lot of mileage for a major media company, um, but there are better people out there than me who know how that might work. And any exposure you and your program could give, it would be, could, could well help that happen. And look, what I'd say is, folks, if you're, if you're listening to this, again, it's just one of those sort of um, six degrees of separation things. So if you possibly know someone in a, in a large, especially helicopter company who wouldn't uh, mind some of the exposure that you know Dennis's name and reputation and uh, his history brings to it, uh, to, to pass this sort of interview around and, uh, and draw up some support there for Dennis. Now, Dennis, we've started speaking about the scholarship, but we haven't actually touched on the reason you started in the, in the first place. So can you give some context and, and take us back a couple of years? What drove you to, to start the scholarship and I guess why it's such a you know an important passion for you to be following through? Yeah, okay, Mick. Well, we raised the subject of the um, Sikorsky or Hughes Flight 300 accident, which if you include in the interview, um, the, the um, listeners or readers will know about. My son, Dennis, was 18. He had already got 300 hours of tuition, uh, had a, a contained a license, and had passed the acceptance test to become a flying instructor at 18, which would have been quite an achievement in itself. Pretty experienced guy. He flew the jet range of the Enstrom and the 300. 
Um, very, of course, my son, so I'm going to say anything, nothing other than me. He, he really was a, a pretty switched on guy, a lot better than me in lots of respects, and he flew nicely. And unfortunately, he was flying the machine that had the cluster failure, uh, and the aircraft broke up in the air, and he was lost, and this was in March 2000, along with uh, his co-pilot and uh, an lady who was on board at the time. Um, when the dust settled and I managed to start thinking straight for myself, I decided, like a lot of people do in situations like that, I wanted to do something to, to perpetuate its memory. Uh, and I thought, what about me doing something must come from the wreckage of that accident, and I hit on the idea of having this scholarship. Um, over the years, I had an awful lot of my friends, people, um, some really lovely people who have given me funding. Um, I produced a DVD um, of my, the best of the world's displays, mine included, some of mine, and Gary Gierkoff's, the um, Russians, and various other people. We put it together, and uh, we have a guy in America, but nobody in, this, in Australia, funny enough, who took on some sort of informal dealership to sell the DVD. Now, it cost us two pounds to build, to, to produce a couple of thousand, and I was selling them to the trade people at 10 pounds in sterling money, and in America, my agent over there was selling them for $40, which in those days was probably 25 pounds. So there was a commercial motive for doing it, but I was getting the funding. And in fact, the DVD sales for the first two or three years, plus um, the donations I got from various people, and we had daft things like a million and one up on a darts ball, those sort of things. We had an air show once called Wings and Wheels, and uh, I did a display there. Those sort of things will keep me in going. But now, you know, years are creeping up on me. I've got an active brain, but um, you know, the body's not going to last forever. Um, and so I just wanted to form this scholarship and, and to perpetuate the memory of my son. That's how it all came about, um, and we've run the scholarship since 2015, not every year, because we've not had the money. Um, and right now, of course, um, I, I can't literally, uh, in retirement, um, just pump up £20,000 every year uh, to support it. So I've got some money in the pot at the moment from people who even to this day keep sending in uh, small amounts. So what I'm looking for is um, a major international, really, maybe somebody who's got enough money in the back pocket to do it anyway or because they're in love with aviation but the financing is a big problem I've had an offer of a hangar at a British airfield for this period of the uh, scholarship um, and I think I could probably even get fuel paid for but I'd love to see the scholarship run to take somebody out of the woodwork to use that expression again and see them through to a private license and possibly even take them on in some arrangement with another commercial firm uh, to a commercial license. So we literally take them from nothing uh, and, and give them their first commercial job. That's the, the idea behind the thing. And I'll, I'd do anything in the way of making a program or whatever a sponsor wanted in any way they wanted to get something back from it or if they just felt, leave it to us and, and we'll run it. So. That's the background to it. Um, in the past, I've done the instruction myself. Well, you know, I, I might walk into my doc one day and he says, sorry, then no more medicals. Um, but I think for 2015, if we managed to run it, um, I would I would contract out the whole of the training. And I got various schools interested in doing that. And I say, we need something to read of £20,000 in the pot to do that each year. 
Yeah, it's a, definitely not a cheap exercise for anyone looking at it. But um, yeah, to have that scholarship go through and uh, there's a, you know for a corporate, there's a lot of mileage uh, that people can get off that. How do how do people apply? What's the process of going through and okay. the selection process? There is a website. It's my name, Dennis with two ends, Dennis Dash Kenyon dot com. Uh, that's my website, albeit in semi-retirement it doesn't need to be active but there is a whole page there with an entry form uh, and how you apply these days and I'm just about to change the website I think once I know I've got sufficient money to definitely offer scholarship 2015 I would ask people to simply email me um, and my email is on the website but just while we're talking again it's the same name it's Dennis dot kenyon at sky dot com dennis with two n's dennis dot kenyon at sky dot com so uh, i have a standard reply that will send out so thank you for your um, inquiry once we know we're in a firm position to run the scholarship the funding is in place and the airplane is in place uh, and i've managed to contract it out to whoever it is at the present time restricted to english nationals now, if the right firm came in, if an international shell or BP or anybody of an international status came in, I'd make, make it worldwide. There's no, there's no limit to where we could go. We could have a scholarship in every Birmingham country in the world, figuratively speaking, but the major countries, of course, in practice. So, uh, and I would certainly run it in retirement for as long as somebody wanted. And if it got big enough, if it got big enough, um, then hand over to a professional to run it on whatever basis they, they felt they wanted to. It is in England, it is the only scholarship, and it has been for the last 15 years, to take somebody from scratch, we call it ab initio, up to a commercial standard. There are a few little scholarships that will give you an add-on to existing license, but this scholarship is the only one in England. For all I know, it may be in the world. Somebody else might tell me differently, but I've never heard of another one. So. It's a lovely opportunity, and when companies make, like Tesco's and people talking about dropping their profits by $100 million this year, um, if somebody put a million pounds in the pot and just let me have the interest on it when interest rates recover a bit, that would pay for the scholarship each year. I don't even want the money. Um, lots of possibilities. If somebody emails me, I, I would outline it. All sorts of ideas I have on that. Uh, and... Uh, I've had a wonderful, wonderful career in aviation, apart from the domestic, of course, but a wonderful career. And I'm trying to put back, if I've got, if the good Lord gives me another five or ten years, I'm trying to put something back in it. And the best way I can do it uh, would obviously be through some sort of scholarship like this. It just needs money. Uh, and, of course, we all know how expensive helicopters can be. It needs money that's outside my capabilities at the moment. Yeah, and look, Dennis, on the on the show notes on the website, um, right up for this episode, we'll we'll link to that uh, page where folks can come along and one apply for the scholarship, and also two, if they're interested in uh, sponsoring it, they can come and, and find out some more details there. So uh, that link will be on on the website if you go to the show notes if you're listening. And yeah, please, as I said, do pass this uh, episode around, and uh, we'll see what exposure and uh, basically network we can get ha- happening for for Dennis. 
All right, Dennis, is there, there's a couple more questions just about the flying uh, stage, but was, <laughs> okay. there, was there, and again, because we're running the two episodes, uh, you know, I'm not going to get a chance and very few people are going to get a chance to, to listen to you again, so I'll just make the most of it. Is, is there anything else on the scholarship you wanted to uh, quickly cover that we haven't covered first, so? Um, on the scholarship, um, I think applicants have got to be aware of their aptitude um, in England or even in Europe, there aren't any pre-educational requirements for becoming a helicopter pilot. But the apart from the physical demands of physically learning to fly, there's an awful lot of scientific study that needs to be done. Scientific is probably the wrong word, but one needs to know what the weather's doing. One needs to know how the helicopters are forming, how it's going to behave in different circumstances. A good engineering background helps. The person needs to be eligible in that respect. And of course, another of the majors is they need to be fit. They do need to pass an air crew medical. In England, we have three classes, weren't we? It's in Europe now, one, two, and three. I still hold, God bless, a, um, a class one medical, which is the highest standard you can get, but that cannot go on forever. I know that at some stage, my doctor's going to say, Dennis, I'm going to have to drop you to a two or not give you one at all. Um, so they do need to be, believe themselves to be fairly fit, believe themselves capable of absorbing the ground school, which in the case of a commercial license is degree level, I promise you. There are, seven, I think it's 17 books the size of a London telephone directory covering the syllabus. So the commercial aspect is, is, could be quite daunting and the person needs tons and tons of motivation uh, and desire to do that. The private license, much less so. But I really, if I could pull in a major international sponsor of the, of the right level, uh, then I'd love to say, look, let's give these people a commercial license. You see, the firms like Bristow's did it in a smaller way. I say smaller, sorry, a bigger way, really, but in a, in a different way years ago when they sponsored people out of the woodwork to get a license, but only on the basis that they employed them and the pilot paid back the costs. They may still be doing that, for all I know. I know at one stage, the government, the British government had a scheme where they would put up a third of the money, the sponsor put up a third of the money, and the pilot himself put up a third of the money. Uh, I don't think those things are going at the moment. So there's a gap there for somebody to put money in and, and see something new happen. Um, and I would help see it through. Brilliant. Okay. All right, Dennis, so let's be on basically probably another three questions just talking about the rough flying and then we'll close oh, yeah. up and, uh, and do that. So real quickly, I was going to say, is there particular helicopter types that you haven't flown that you'd still love to, to have a crack at? So you mentioned uh, the, the yeah, 105 and before the call you mentioned uh, another one there. So yeah, I have it, that question. The answer to that is I'm dying to fly a UAE and I know you have. <laughs> and I never have. It's a legend, isn't it? The Huey is an absolute legend. Chicken Hawk and all that goes with it. Gosh, I think as soon as that book came out, uh, I was reading it. Yeah. So if the question is, what is the helicopter that you'd most like to fly? I'd have to say a Huey. And it's as old as the Blooming Hills, but there you go. That's the one I'd love to fly. It's charismatic. It's everything you can imagine about being a helicopter pilot. I've flown some big ones, the 61 and that sort of thing. But uh, to get him hands on a Huey and its background, its history, and the nostalgia would be magic for me. Well, as we said, there's the, there's the UK Huey that's floating around, so we'll have to see what we can do. 
<laughs> yes, I tried Australia, but I thought I could fly one. <laughs> oh, all ours are all ours are at the front of uh, RSL clubs. Unfortunately, they've all been uh, put up on pedestals or uh, in museums. Yes, yes. Uh, there's a magazine that I'm maybe starting to write for in England it's very shortly, and I'm going to suggest at some stage that perhaps we did an article on the here under that, and I'll I'll spend an awful lot of time getting it right, and the, the site will just be at the end of it, and. Uh, you know, the, you know, this the charisma of that that machine is well. I don't think it's anything that approaches it. Approaches it. No, yeah, I love it. But uh, all right, just quickly, I'm always interested in talking to, to folks about uh, emergencies they've had in their career. So you've had a, more than one. You've had a couple of tower failures. Is that right? I've had three, in fact. The first was: you, can you believe that an engineer? dismantled the tail rotor assembly of an Enstrom. He reassembled it <laughs> with the tail rotor blades leading training edge first. And being the ace that I am, I didn't spot it on the pre-flight. Got the thing airborne, only fortunately only in a hover. And because of the configuration, the wrong configuration of the tail rotor blades, they were absorbing far too much power, taking too much power, through the tower transmission, and it ceased. Um, and uh, I pointed out to the engineer who was sitting alongside me at, that, at the time, saying, look, that, that manifold pressure's wrong. We're using too much power. What the hell's going wrong? And almost as I said it, the tower seized, the gearbox seized. And um, this is what's going to amuse people who know about flying. The helicopter swung round to the right, hit the ground, and yawed left. So I jumped out thinking, what the hell is going on? I was very inexperienced then. Went up to my boss and said, um, boss, or his name's Roy, actually, Roy, I've just had a tower out of failure. Um, where the gearbox is, he said, oh, you all right? Yes, it was about the airplane. I said, well, the airplane's okay, or the helicopter's okay. Um, but then I sat down and thought, why the hell did the machine go round to the right? Because they go left with the rotors going right to left. So I went downstairs, looked at the skid marks on the ground, and sure enough, there was the first skid, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and then back down to the 9 o'clock position. And what had actually happened was, I was so twitched up knowing something was wrong, that the moment the tarot to let go, I closed the throttle, and of course, then uh, immediately, it swung round to the right a little bit before it went back to the left. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So <laughs> um, in the instrument, so the instrument is... Um... You might, you might choose to rub all that out, but the most the more interesting one is that I took off on one occasion from Shoreham um, where a stone had gone through the tail cone, above the tail cone, between the tail cone and the tire shaft and scored the tower of the shaft, and subsequently it failed. And as I was at about, I can't remember, five, six, seven hundred feet heading out from the airfield, it failed. It yawed massively round to the right, like they do, and um, I didn't know what was going on at all. I always remember my passenger just thought we were turning back to base because the instrument's quite a smooth machine. I dumped the lever, which in hindsight was the right thing to do, but I didn't know it at the time. As it got close to the ground, I pulled on the lever, uh, and that, of course, stopped any further yaw to the left. And at the same time, I had to hit the ground and roll forward. So that was my first, and I had no idea what was going on, just a combination of luck, maybe a little bit of skill. So I studied it a fair bit more, um, and then subsequently I was doing a display at Biggin Hill in 1999, where in a steep manoeuvre, 
the tail rotor control cable flexed under the power and because the st flapping stops on the tail rotor blades were softened, it got too close to the tail of the cable and snipped it. And that cable then wrapped itself around the transmission, the loose end, and seized. And I did a run on landing there um, without damage to the airplane. So, you know, because I had thought about it a great deal, and I still teach it. Some people come to me now and say, would you spend a half a day with me on power failures? And I'm not alone doing that. Lots and lots of instrument instructors do it. Uh, my dear friend Tim Price at uh, Shoreham is an ace at it, and he does that quite regularly for customers, as I still will at the time. So that was my second, and uh, luckily the man from the Civil Aviation Authority saw it, and um, he must have, at the next committee meeting, said, I think we ought to give some sort of diploma, or they don't call it a diploma, or a safety certificate to Dennis for, for, for recovering, and I've still got that on the wall now, I'm very proud of, of course. Oh, <laughs> And I did actually, funny enough, it's not written, but I did actually have another one once. Um, but it was only a partial one at a place called <laughs> Crinkly Bottom. Noel Edmonds in England is a well-known celebrity who used to run a program from Crinkly Bottom with the infamous Mr. Blobby. And I only partially snipped the cable there. Uh, so I had half control. And I did a run on landing at local cricket pitch, which uh, intrigued the players at the time. But that one was only really a partial failure. All right, and there's a, a UFO story. Is that uh, is that, that one? Is there a UFO story in there somewhere? I did. Yes, I wrote an article about it when I was in the Royal Air Force flying on sixty-one squadron, the, the Canberra B two model. Um, the exercises we used to do were to take off from. I was based at Wittering at the time. And we'd take off, head up to the north, um, and, and do what's called a cruise climb. The Canberra was an incredible aeroplane. Um, it would fly, we would climb it at 350 knots, best rate of climb for the thing, until the Mach meter came round to 0.72. Thereafter, you would then go on climbing a Mach number, 720,000 of the speed of sound. Uh, and we'd get to about 40,000 feet and then level off. And in those days, the Hunter had only just come into service and it wouldn't be performed much above 40,000 feet. The Americans had the Sabre squadrons. They were worse than the Hunter, being highly swept back. And here we are now doing a cruise climb at Mac. I think we're probably at Mac at 0.8 or something like that. I can't remember. So we're really going along. Um, and I call my navigator and say, we've got a guy formating on us at the 3 o'clock position. I thought, what the hell can be holding this sort of speed um, at this sort of height? I think we were around the 46,000 feet high. We used to wear pressure demand masks in those days, and the cabin was pressurized to probably 20,000 feet or something like that. Um, and I'm watching this thing, and I'm thinking, it's keeping speed with me. So I slowed down. And sure enough, it just held station, so it had to be another airplane. Uh, I had increased to the maximum speed again, and I called my navigator forward, a chap called Hassel Palmer, who was an Indian, a, a great uh, writer of that navigation techniques, uh, and just side, side issue, he, he produced a load of star shots for sextant work, uh, taking the, the inaccuracies of the Canberra canopy into account, but then that's a side story. But he comes and sits there and says, what is it? All I can see is this light, and it's probably a holding station that I know three or four hundred yards away. 
when I slowed down, it slowed down when I went faster. I thought, is it a reflection off the clouds? But no clouds are 45,000 feet. Uh, and uh, I then called the at the ATC somewhere up in Scotland, it was. I always remember because I said we were near Haywick, and the bloke said, you mean Hoyk. <laughs> Haywick was the English interpretation of the Scottish town. He said, you mean Hoyk? And I said, right, we've got traffic at our three o'clock position. He said, nothing showing on radar. And then almost as he said it, this thing just took off at the speed of light. It went. It just pulled ahead faster than us going away. Now, you tell me what that was, because I don't know to this day. The only thing I could put it down to was a UFO. I reported it when I got down and heard no more about it. <laughs> That's another little dull story. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much you could edit that to complete. No, no, I'll leave it all unique stuff. So, all right, well, look, this is awesome. Let's, I'll finish up with one more question then. And okay, basically, be the, you know, of all the advice you've been given, at, you know, through your pilot career or just things you picked up along the way, if you had to sit down with someone listening to this and they could be, a, you know, in a hangar in South America or uh, maybe to your next um, scholarship student there in the UK. So uh, someone who's interested in aviation or an existing pilot, what's the, the best advice that you can give them? I try and be more brief, and I have been so far. You need the motivation, the determination to do it. Then become a sort of anorak. That's an English expression for somebody who's a bit of a nutcase on, on a subject. Become a bit of an anorak, but as far as technical knowledge is concerned, get to know what you're going to do. Know the aircraft you're going to fly inside and out. And just remember throughout your whole flying career, there are only three things that matter. Once you've got your license, they are in the order of importance, safety, safety, and number three, safety. That would be my advice. Um, it may not be money that stops you getting there. Uh, generally speaking, it's a difficult thing to overcome, but I can't tell you how many youngsters I've met who dragged themselves up by their bootstraps, polished airplanes, hung around the hangars, and gradually got themselves a private license, slowly built up hours over a long period of time, and they are now flying commercially. It's not impossible by a long way. Oh, I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> no, we'll take that. So, look, uh, folks, you've been listening to uh, Dennis uh, Kenyon, uh, an absolute legend, and uh, there's just not too many folks around now with the, the sort of experience uh, that you've just taken us through there, Dennis. So thank you so much again for taking the time out to, to chat with us. And, uh, yeah, let's see if we can't get some something happening for you on the, on the scholarship side of things. Michael, it's been a wonderful morning talking to you and certainly having the opportunity to grow over some of the stories that I like telling. Uh, I hope I haven't been too verbal about it, but no doubt you can edit out all the stuff that, uh, that we don't need. All right, thank you. So you've just been listening to living helicopter legend Dennis Kenyon. It's an absolute honor to bring that to you, and I really enjoyed doing that. So I hope you had a great time listening to it. A special thank you to past scholarship winner Hannah Nobbs for getting a message back to me to read out to Dennis at pretty short notice. So that's really appreciated, Hannah, and you can hear in the interview that Dennis appreciated that too. If you can get behind Dennis's scholarship or you have connections in the industry that would be able to help support what he's trying to do, then please have a look or think what you can do from your end. From a commercial aspect, it is not going to hurt at all to have some of Dennis's uh, magic rub off on your aviation brand. 
So thank you, dear listener and fellow helicopter fanatic, for joining me again this week for another dose of helicopters. We'll be back next week with more of the same when we head back to the US Eastern Seaboard to talk with Philip Greenspun. If you want to keep up with things in between the shows, then follow the show on Facebook or Twitter, and you can just search for a Rotary Wing show on each of those uh, platforms. If you haven't yet signed up for the email list and download the list of the top 10 helicopter books for helicopter aircrew, then you can do that over at the show website, rotarywingshow.com. You'll find photos and many of the links mentioned in today's show there. Plus, you'll be able to leave a message for Dennis in the comments for this episode, episode 15, or part one of the interview in episode 14, and I'll make sure he gets those. I've been your host, Mick Cullen, wishing you a fantastic week coming up.